Chapter 3, Part 2 Autobiography This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Gilbert Autobiography by John Stuart Mill Chapter 3 Last Stage of Education and First of Self-Education Part 2 Mr. Austin, who was four or five years older than Mr. Grote, was the eldest son of a retired miller in Suffolk, who had made money by contracts during the war, and who must have been a man of remarkable qualities, as I infer from the fact that all his sons were of more than common ability, and all eminently gentlemen. The one with whom we are now concerned, and whose writings on jurisprudence have made him celebrated, was for some time in the army, and served in Sicily under Lord William Bentinck. After the peace he sold his commission and studied for the bar, to which he had been called for some time before my father knew him. He was not, like Mr. Grote, to any extent a pupil of my father, but he had attained, by reading and thought, a considerable number of the same opinions, modified by his own very decided individuality of character. He was a man of great intellectual powers, which in conversation appeared at their very best. From the vigor and richness of expression with which, under the excitement of discussion, he was accustomed to maintain some view or other of most general subjects, and from an appearance of not only strong but deliberate and collected will, mixed with a certain bitterness, partly delivered from temperament, and partly from the general cast of his feelings and reflections. The dissatisfaction with life in the world felt more or less in the present state of society and intellect by every discerning and highly conscientious mind, gave in his case a rather melancholy tinge to the character, very naturally to those whose passive moral susceptibilities are more than proportioned to their active energies. For it must be said that the strength of will of which his manner seemed to give such strong assurance expended itself principally in manner, with great zeal for human improvement, a strong sense of duty, and capabilities and acquirements the extent of which is proved by the writings he has left. He hardly ever completed any intellectual task of magnitude. He had so high a standard of what ought to be done, so exaggerated a sense of deficiencies in his own performances, and was so unable to content himself with the amount of elaboration sufficient for the occasion and the purpose, that he not only spoilt much of his work for ordinary use by over-laboring it, but spent so much time and exertion in superfluous study and thought, that when his task ought to have been completed, he had generally worked himself into an illness without having half finished what he undertook. For this mental infirmity, of which he is not the sole example among the accomplished and the able men whom I have known, combined with liability to frequent attacks of disabling, though not dangerous, ill-health, he accomplished, through life, little in comparison with what he seemed capable of, but what he did produce is held in the very highest estimation by the most competent judges, and, like Coleridge, he might plead as a set-off that he had been to many persons, through his conversation, 
a source not only of much instruction, but of great elevation of character. On me his influence was most salutary. It was moral in the best sense. He took a sincere and kind interest in me, far beyond what could have been expected towards a mere youth from a man of his age, standing, and what seemed austerity of character. There was in his conversation and demeanor a tone of high-mindedness which did not show itself so much, if the quality existed as much, in any of the other persons with whom at that time I associated. My intercourse with him was the more beneficial, owing to his being of a different mental type from all other intellectual men whom I frequented, and he from the first set himself decidedly against the prejudices and narrownesses which are almost sure to be found in a young man, formed by a particular mode of thought or a particular social circle. His younger brother, Charles Austin, of whom at this time and for the next year or two I saw much, had also a great effect on me, though of a very different description. He was but a few years older than myself, and had then just left the university, where he had shown with great eclat as a man of intellect, as a brilliant orator and converser. The effect he produced on his Cambridge contemporaries deserves to be accounted an historical event, for it may in part be traced the tendency toward liberalism in general, and the bethantic and politico-economic form of it in particular, which showed itself in a portion of the more active-minded young men of the higher classes from this time to 1830. The Union Debating Society at that time, at the height of its reputation, was an arena where what were then thought extreme opinions in politics and philosophy were weakly asserted face to face with their opposites before audiences consisting of the elite of the cambridge youth and though many persons afterwards of more or less note of whom lord macaulay is the most celebrated gained their first oratorical laurels in those debates the really influential mind among these intellectual gladiators was charles austin he continued after leaving the university to be by his conversation and personal ascendancy a leader among the same class of young men who had been his associates there and he attached me among others to his car through him i became acquainted with macaulay hyde and charles villeners strutt now lord belper romley now lord romley and master of the rolls and various others who subsequently figured in literature or politics, and among whom I heard discussions on many topics as yet to a certain degree new to me. The influence of Charles Austin over me differed from that of the persons I have hitherto mentioned in being not the influence of a man over a boy, but that of an elder contemporary. It was through him that I first felt myself not a pupil under teachers, but a man among men. He was the first person of intellect, whom I met on a ground of equality, though as yet much his inferior on that common ground. He was a man who never failed to impress greatly those with whom he came in contact, even when their opinions were the very reverse of his. The impression he gave was that of boundless strength together with talents which, combined with such apparent force of will and character, seemed capable of dominating the world. Those who knew him, whether friendly to him or not, 
always anticipated that he would play a conspicuous part in public life. It is seldom that men produce so great an immediate effect by speech, unless they in some degree lay themselves out for it, and he did this in no ordinary degree. He loved to strike, and even to startle. He knew that decision is the greatest element of effect, and he uttered his opinions with all the decision he could throw into them never so well pleased as when he astonished any one by their audacity, very unlike his brother, who made war against the narrow interpretations and applications of the principles they both professed. He, on the contrary, presented the Bethanic doctrines in the most startling form of which they were susceptible, exaggerating everything in them which tended to consequences offensive to any one's preconceived feelings all which he defended with such verve and vivacity, and carried off by a manner so agreeable as well as forcible, that he always either came off victor or divided the honours of the field. It is my belief that much of the notion popularly entertained of the tenets and sentiments of what are called Benthamites, or utilitarians, had its origin in paradoxes thrown out by Charles Austin. It must be said, however, that his example was followed, haud passibus by younger proselytes, and that to auteur, whatever was by any one considered offensive in the doctrines and maxims of Benthamism, became at one time the badge of a small courtier of use. All of these who had anything in them, myself among others, quickly outgrew this boyish vanity. But those who had not, became tired of differing from other people, and gave up both the good and the bad part of the heterodox opinions they had for some time professed. It was in the winter of 1822-3 that I formed the plan of a little society to be composed of young men agreeing in fundamental principles, acknowledging utility as their standard in ethics and politics, and a certain number of the principal corollaries drawn from it in the philosophy I had accepted, and meeting once a fortnight to read essays and discuss questions comfortably to the premises thus agreed on. The fact would hardly be worth mentioning, but for the circumstance that the name I gave to the society I had planned was the Utilitarian Society. It was the first time that anyone had taken the title of Utilitarian, and the term made its way into the language from this humble source. I did not invent the word, but found it in one of Galt's novels, The Annals of the Parish, in which the Scottish clergyman, for whom the book is a supposed autobiography, is represented as warning his parishioners not to leave the gospel and become utilitarians. With a boy's fondness for a name and a banner, I seized on the word, and for some years called myself and others by it, as a sectarian appellation and it came to be occasionally used by some others holding the opinions which i was intended to designate as those opinions attracted more notice the term was repeated by strangers and opponents and got into rather common use just about the time when those who had originally assumed it laid down that along with other sectarian characteristics the society so called consisted at first of no more than three members, one of whom being Mr. Bentham's amanuensis, obtained for us permission to hold our meetings in his house. The number never, I think, reached ten, and the society 
was broken up in 1826. It had thus an existence of about three years and a half. The chief effect of it, as regards myself, over and above the benefit of practice in oral discussion, was that of bringing me in contact with several young men at that time less advanced than myself, among whom, as they professed the same opinions, I was for some time a sort of leader, and had considerable influence on their mental progress. Any young man of education who fell in my way, and whose opinions were not incompatible with those of the society, I endeavoured to press into its service, and some others I probably should never have known had they not joined it. Those of the members who became my intimate companions, no one of whom was in any sense of the word a disciple, but all of them independent thinkers on their own basis, were William Eaton Tooke, son of the eminent political economist, a young man of singular worth, both moral and intellectual, lost to the world by an early death. His friend, William Ellis, an original thinker in the field of political economy, now honorably known by his apostolic exertions for the improvement of education. Sir George Graham, afterwards official assignee of the bankruptcy court, a thinker of originality and power on almost all abstract subjects, and from the time when he came first to England to study for the bar in 1824 or 1825, a man who has made considerably more noise in the world than any of these, John Arthur Roebuck. In May 1823, my professional occupation and status for the next thirty-five years of my life were decided by my father's obtaining for me an appointment from the East India Company in the office of the Examiner of India Correspondence, immediately under himself. I was appointed in the usual manner at the bottom of the list of clerks, to rise, at least in the first instance, by seniority, but with the understanding that I should be employed from the beginning in preparing drafts of dispatches, and be thus trained up as a successor to those who then filled the higher departments of the office. My drafts, of course, required for some time much revision from my immediate superiors, but I soon became well acquainted with the business and by my father's instructions and the general growth of my own powers, I was in a few years qualified to be, and practically was, the chief conductor of the correspondence with India in one of the leading departments, that of the native states. This continued to be my official duty until I was appointed examiner, only two years before the time when the abolition of the East India Company as a political body determined my retirement. I do not know any one of the occupations by which a subsistence can now be gained more suitable than such as this to any one who, not being in independent circumstances, desires to devote a part of the twenty-four hours to private intellectual pursuits. Writing for the press cannot be recommended as a permanent resource to anyone qualified to accomplish anything in the higher departments of literature or thought not only on account of the uncertainty of this means of livelihood, especially if the writer has a conscience, and will not consent to serve any opinions except his own, but also because the writings by which one can live are not the writings which themselves live, and are never those in which the writer does his best. Books destined to form future thinkers take too much time to write, and when written come, in general, too slowly into notice and repute to be relied upon for sustenance. Those who have to support themselves by their pen must depend on literary drudgery, 
or at best on writings addressed to the multitude, and can employ in the pursuits of their own choice only such time as they can spare from those of necessity, which is generally less than the leisure allowed by office occupations, while the effect on the mind is far more enervating and fatiguing. For my own part, I have, through life, found office duties and actual rest from the other mental occupations which I have carried on simultaneously with them. They were sufficiently intellectual not to be a distasteful drudgery, without being such as to cause any strain upon the mental powers of a person used to abstract thought, or to the labor of careful literary composition. The drawbacks, for every mode of life has its drawbacks, were not, however, unfelt by me. I cared little for the loss of the chances of riches and honors held by some of the professions, particularly the bar, which had been, as I have already said, the profession thought of for me. But I was not indifferent to exclusion from Parliament and public life, and I felt very sensibly the more immediate unpleasantness of confinement to London, the holiday allowed by India House practice, not exceeding a month in the year, while my taste was strong for a country life, and my sojourn in France had left behind it an ardent desire for travelling. But though these tastes could not be freely indulged, they were at no time entirely sacrificed. I passed most Sundays throughout the year in the country, taking long rural walks on that day even when residing in London. The month's holiday was, for a few years, passed in my father's house in the country. Afterwards, a part or the whole was spent in tours, chiefly pedestrian, with one or more of the young men who were my chosen companions, and at a later period, in longer journeys or excursions, alone or with other friends. France, Belgium, and Rhenish Germany were within easy reach of the annual holiday, and two longer absences, one of three, the other of six months, under medical advice, added Switzerland, the Tyrol, and Italy to my list. Fortunately, also, both these journeys occurred rather early, so as to give the benefit and charm of the remembrance to a large portion of my life. I am disposed to agree with what has been surmised by others, that the opportunity which my official position gave me of learning by personal observation the necessary conditions of the practical conduct of public affairs has been of considerable value to me as a theoretical reformer of the opinions and institutions of my time. Not, indeed, that public business transacted on paper to take effect on the other side of the globe was of itself calculated to give much practical knowledge of life. But the occupation accustomed me to see and hear the difficulties of every course, and the merits of obviating them, stated and discussed deliberately with a view to execution. It gave me opportunities of perceiving when public measures and other political facts did not produce the effects which had been expected of them, and from what causes, above all, it was valuable to me by making me in this portion of my activity merely one wheel in a machine. I should have had no one to consult but myself, and should have entered in my speculations none of the obstacles which would have started up whenever they came to be applied to practice. But as a secretary conducting political correspondence, I could not issue an order or express an opinion without satisfying various persons very unlike myself that the thing was fit to be done. 
I was thus in a good position for finding out by practice the mode of putting a thought which gives it easiest admittance to minds not prepared for it by habit. While I became particularly conversant with the difficulties of moving bodies of men, the necessities of compromise, the art of sacrificing the non-essential to preserve the essential, I learnt how to obtain the best I could when I could not obtain everything. Instead of being indulgent or dispirited because I could not have entirely my own way, to be pleased and encouraged when I could have the smallest part of it, and when even that could not be, to bear with complete equanimity the being overruled altogether. I have found, through life, these acquisitions to be of the greatest possible importance for personal happiness, and they are also a very necessary condition for enabling anyone, whether as theorist or as practical man, to effect the greater amount of good compatible with his opportunities. End of chapter 3 Last Stages of Education and First of Self-Education Part 2 Recorded by Gary Gilbert